Jim Elliott was a missionary to Ecuador and the native Indians there. And while on furlough at one time, a reporter asked him why he chose to serve such a violent people. And Elliot responded, He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Shortly after Elliot returned to Ecuador, they sought to reach an unreached tribe. And after what appeared to be an initial opening by the tribe, they went in. And we know the story, many of us, that Elliot himself was killed along with five other colleagues by this Wanandi tribe. Most Christians will never face martyrdom for our faith. But all Christians will encounter suffering to varying degrees for the sake of Christ. And the book of Hebrews, at least from chapters 10 and onward, at least to chapter 12 and 13, specifically points out that the believers to whom the writer addressed this letter were suffering. We find earlier in chapter 10, when he details their sufferings, he tells them that after they were enlightened, that is when they became believers, they endured a great contest of suffering. They were, upon becoming Christians, faced with great hardships. And he delineates some of the hardships that they encountered. They were publicly scorned and abused. They were beaten physically for their faith. Some of them had their properties taken away, confiscated by those around. And he reminded them that even when their properties were taken away, they endured with joy the loss of their possessions because they recognized that they had an inferior, an, 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 a superior, infinitely superior possession in heaven itself. And he ends off chapter 10 by saying to them, you have need of endurance. You must endure hardship. In chapter 11, where we considered this magnificent hall of fame, the writer gives examples after examples of great heroes and heroines of faith who endured hardship. Some of them in the process lost their lives. They were sawn in two, he says. But they endured. And in chapter 12 of Hebrews, again he stressed the need for endurance. He says in verse 1, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, these believers in, verse, in chapter 11 who endured, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance. You see, this theme of endurance continues in this passage. You find it here in verse 1. It appears in verse 2. It appears in verse 3. And again, it appears later in verse 7 of this chapter. And so the writer is ultimately calling them to endurance. They must run with endurance, he tells them in the verse 3 verses. By looking unto Jesus, the author, the trailblazer, of faith, the author and the finisher of faith, who himself endured by seeing the joy that was set before him. And because he endured, God has raised him up and placed him at his right hand in glory. But in this discourse on the need for endurance, the writer of Hebrews tackles a subject that is like the white elephant, that is the elephant in the room. He tackles this subject, the subject of suffering. And today, I want us to reflect on what he says regarding suffering. Now, you may be here and everything is going jolly well for you. There is not a cloud on your horizon. There is no hardship. And if that is the case for you, we are delighted. 
But even you will need to listen to this prophylactically. That is, it will be there to help you in the time of suffering. And if you are going through hardships today, this passage also certainly is for you. Well, what does he say regarding suffering? In verse 3 of chapter 12, the writer says, For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. The first thing that we note as he speaks about suffering is that there is an encouragement to reflect upon Jesus who is the ultimate sufferer. That's the first thing he does in dealing with the subject of suffering. He says there's an encouragement then to reflect upon Jesus as the ultimate sufferer. There's an urgent appeal. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself. Lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. He says consider. And this is calling then for careful and deep reflection. Mental reflection upon Jesus. Some may even see this call to consider as meditate. He's calling them to bring Christ to mind. To turn him over and over in their minds. And to reflect upon him. The verb. To consider is an imperative. It is a command. And it's an aorist command, at least in the original. It means then, at least the nuances, they are to do so immediately. It's a call to immediate action. That is, consider him who endure such hostilities against himself from sinners and do so immediately. And the, the implication is, of course, that part of the problem here in the letter to the Hebrews, the reason that they were discouraged and did not want to pursue Christ and pursue this way is that they were not thinking sufficiently. They were not meditating and considering Christ sufficiently. We see the same term used to consider, used by the prophet Isaiah in chapter 44 verse 19, where he chastises Israel for not considering the folly of idolatry. And he's talking about how they used wood uh, and you know to cook their meals and to and yet to worship the same piece of wood and he says and no one considers in his heart nor is there knowledge nor understanding to say I have burned half of it that is the wood in the fire yes I also have baked bread on its coals and I have roasted meat and eaten it and shall I make the rest of it an abomination shall I fall down before a block of wood the people of Israel part of the reason for their sinfulness was that they were not thinking. They were involved in idolatry, but there was not a bearing of the mind upon the ridiculous and stupidity in which they were involved in worshiping idols. And the writer brings this in a graphic way. They, they use the same piece of wood to bake bread, and yet they worship it. Here, he chastises them mildly for not considering now the faithfulness of Christ. Israel of old did not consider the folly of idolatry, but these do not consider the faithfulness of Christ, especially in suffering. He endured suffering. But what aspect of the life of Christ does he want them to think upon? First of all, he considers, he calls them to think upon Christ who endured hostility. He's referring now to all of the sufferings that the Lord Jesus Christ has endured. Consider him who endured such hostilities from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. What he does then is that he taps into this theme that runs through at least the prophetic tradition. And Isaiah, of course, in, uh, certainly emphasizes that Christ is the suffering servant. And he says, I want you to consider Christ who endured hostility, who suffered at the hands of sinners. The writer of Hebrews speaks of Christ as a sufferer. And there are three things we must at least note about the sufferings of Jesus. First of all, in Hebrews, the sufferings of Christ are presented as real. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 to 8, the writer says regarding the Lord that in the day of his flesh, or in the days of his flesh when he became man, when he was offered up, when he had offered up prayers and supplications 
with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. In chapter 5 of Hebrews, the discussion relates to the Lord Jesus Christ's equipment and suitability to be high priest. And one of the criteria for a high priest was that he must be able to identify with the people whom he serves. And so the writer is making the point that Jesus Christ is a suitable high priest because he's able to identify with us. And he says he's able to identify with us in this area, in the area of suffering. Because in the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplication with vehement cries and tears. What is he talking about? What is going back to the Garden of Gethsemane? When the Lord Jesus Christ with the, with the cross looming before him, cried out with tears, passionately, deeply, to God. If it is possible, oh my Father, if it is possible, remove this cup from me, but not as I will, but thy will be done. He's saying the Lord Jesus Christ, you see, suffered. And he learned obedience through suffering. It doesn't mean that he wasn't obedient before, but he expressed his obedience practically in bearing up in suffering. Thus, the sufferings of our Lord must be seen as genuine, as real. They were not play-acting. He was not pretending to be in pain. He was not pretending to suffer. He truly suffered. For the writer of Hebrews, the sufferings of our Lord, the sufferings which he endured, were not only real, they were righteous. And he says, makes it clear, the writer of Hebrews, that he says, for such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy and harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners and has become higher than the heavens in chapter 7, verse 26. The sufferings of our Lord were righteous because he did not have any sin of his own. He did never committed sin. He says he was holy and he's harmless and undefiled and separate from sinners. We can never truly consider ourselves to be righteous sufferers, for we are ultimately sinners. The apostle Peter says of our Lord regarding his sufferings, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled did not revile in return, and when he suffered he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously in 1 Peter 2, 22 and 23. But not only was then the sufferings of our Lord real and righteous, but the sufferings of the Lord were redemptive. That is, his sufferings were for the purpose of salvation. In chapter 2, verses 9 and 10 of Hebrews, again the writer states, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. This, of course, falls within the discussion of our Lord Jesus Christ, where the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus Christ in chapter 1 is greater than even the angelic host. But in chapter 2, he nuances this slightly. And he says that even though Jesus Christ is greater than the angelic host, that he was made lower than the angels, that when he became man, he placed himself lower than the angels by taking on humanity. And the reason he took on humanity is that he might suffer death, that he might taste death for everyone, for all of his children. For it was fitting for him, from whom are all things, and to whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. The word perfect then here means to qualify him. He was qualified to be their captain, to be our savior by his suffering. So the sufferings of our Lord were redemptive. And the writer then 
points out to these believers. He says, I want you to consider Christ. His sufferings which are real and righteous and redemptive were genuine suffering. He bore, he endured suffering. And the reason he brings Christ up into this discussion about suffering, it is because he does not want them to become weary. He says, lest you become weary and discouraged, lest you become tired, fatigued, and fail to press on in your faith. And then in verse 4, he brings an aside. He says, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Here they were, suffering, and they wanted to give up. They wanted to throw in the towel, and he says, I want you to consider Christ who endured great hostility, great suffering. And by the way, know that in your sufferings, you have not suffered to bloodshed. In other words, you are not being killed as yet for your faith. And the implication then is if with lesser sufferings you're ready to throw in the towel, what will happen when greater sufferings come along? So the first thing he does in dealing with the suffering is he brings an encouragement to consider Christ who is the ultimate sufferer. Secondly, in dealing with the subject of suffering, we find an explanation of the function of suffering in the lives of Christians. And really, from verse 5 to verse 11 is concerned with this explanation of the function of suffering or the purpose of suffering in the lives of Christians. The writer recognizes that it is possible and often probably that suffering leads people to draw incorrect conclusions about God. And so he sets suffering in its true perspective. In fact, he will bring at least three key insights into suffering. First, he will talk about the significance of suffering, the purpose of suffering, and the result of suffering. And I'm going to look at these in this order. The writer suggests first that suffering signifies that believers are God's children. Look at what he does in verse 5. So he says, not only do I want you to consider Christ, but he says in verse 5, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. Now he quotes a passage from the book of Proverbs. And Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. There the scripture says in the Septuagint version, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. This is a marvelous passage. This is an eye-opening text. Because here they are suffering. And the first thing he says to them regarding the significance of suffering is that suffering signifies that believers are children of God. He says, I want you to note how the scriptures at Proverbs 3 address you. It begins by calling you sons. And so he says, part of your problem is that you have forgotten scripture. You haven't paid sufficient attention to the scripture. You have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons. You see, fundamental to their problem with suffering is that they had made a bifurcation, a polarization of two ideas. They believed that suffering and sonship were incompatible concepts. That you couldn't have suffering and sonship together. And the writer says, no, you can. Because, you see, those believers who suffer, they are children of God. And the text in the Old Testament calls them sons or children. He says they are children. And the first thing they need to know in suffering is that when they suffer as believers, they are suffering as God's children. And Scripture teaches us that we are children of God. Is a word of encouragement. In the midst of their sufferings, they are to remember the exhortation to them as sons. And all believers have this wonderful privilege of being children of God. We are children of God, not naturally. We are not born into the world, children. We are born into the world, enemies of God. We are separate from Him. We do not belong to His spiritual family. We are children of God by Adoption, spiritual adoption. 
1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, in defining our adoption as children, says that our adoption is that grace whereby all those who are justified, God vouchsafed in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption, by which they are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. They have his name put upon them. They receive the spirit of adoption. They have access to the throne of grace with boldness. They are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. They are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. It's a mouthful, but it is marvelous. The children of God, by adoption. See, when God saved us, he did not just deliver us from hell. That's the negative part of conversion. When God saved us, he introduced us into his family and brought us into his family by adoption, where we have the legal right and standing as belonging to him. In Roman adoption, you need to understand that when in Roman times people were adopted into a Roman family, they weren't second-class children. They weren't secondary to the children that were naturally born. That is one of the reasons why, for instance, you will find in the Caesars of Rome, many of those who succeeded the Caesars in Rome were not naturally born children. They were adopted children. But in Roman law, an adopted child and a naturally born child were of the same statue. And so, an adopted child could inherit the property of the family simply because he had equal rights. And we have been brought into the family of God. We have equal rights. We have been given his name. We are under his protection. We are under his care because we are his children. And this adoption, the writer tells us, at least Paul tells us, is an adoption that God had predestined from eternity. So we read in Ephesians 1, 4 to 5, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons. When God looked upon us in eternity and determined to save us, he determined to make us his children, to adopt us into his family by Jesus Christ. So our adoption is by the predestinating grace of God, by God's plan and purpose in eternity past. In Hebrews, it is a son of God, Jesus Christ, who is emphasized. Sonship in Hebrews primarily refers to Christ. But we are sons of God because we are united to Jesus Christ. It is Christ who is the son, capital S, and we are sons, little s. We are children of God because we are joined to the son of God. It is by our union with him that we are introduced into the family of God. Furthermore, we are adopted into sonship by faith. Paul says, for you all are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. In Galatians 3.26. And the sign, the mark of our adoption as children of God is the indwelling spirit. For Paul says, for as many as are led by the spirit of God, these are the sons of God in Romans 8 verse 14. And so the writer says, in suffering, this is what you need to know. The first thing you need to know is that your suffering signifies that you are children of God. Why? Because in the Old Testament, there in Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, he addresses you, my son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. But then the writer moves to say something even more profound than this with regards to suffering. Not only are the believers then to consider themselves those who suffer as children of God, but they are to recognize, secondly, that suffering is designed by God as discipline. This, I think, is groundbreaking, at least in the text. The purpose of suffering, he says, secondly, is discipline. So he quotes a text, My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord. And that word there, chastening, is the word paideia from which we get discipline. Do not be despised 
or do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son he receives. He says, don't treat lightly. Don't be contemptuous about your suffering. Because suffering is for the purpose of discipline. The term discipline means training, instruction for responsible living. And he says, you must interpret your suffering, not only that you are children of God, but that suffering is divine discipline. Notice he does not say that your suffering is punishment because there is a world of difference between punishment and, and discipline. Punishment has to do with the law, satisfying the law, giving one their just deserts. Suffering, that, 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 is, that, is, that is a suffering, which is, which is a suffering seen as punishment, is punitive. It is making sure that the person receives what they deserve. That's punishment. But discipline is corrective. It is corrective. It is to train the person. It is to guide and to direct them in the right path. And here the writer says, my son, do not despise the chastening, the disciplining of the Lord, nor be discouraged when he rebukes you. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, he disciplines, and scourges every son whom he receives. I emphasize this because very often when we think of suffering, we think that we are being punished. And the writer says, no, you must not interpret your suffering as punishment, but fatherly discipline. He says, in order to, to, to encourage them, they must endure suffering because it is fatherly discipline. It's a sign that they're accepted to him. He, he says, in fact, if they endure discipline, in verse 7, then they are children of God. In verse 8, the opposite, he says, if they lack fatherly discipline then it means that they are not children. They are illegitimate. They are not sons and daughters of God. And we know what it is. He's saying, you know, we, we don't go about disciplining, or we ought not go to, to go about disciplining, disciplining other people's children. You know, you, you may see a naughty child in, you know, in a store kicking, them, kicking feet and throwing themselves on the floor and carrying on with temper tantrums and so on because they want a toy, and we may be annoyed by it, and we may think, what, what's going on with these parents? But we don't go over there and tell the boy, no, stand up, behave yourself, and so on. We don't do that because they're not our children. But we discipline our children. And we discipline because we love them. And the writer is saying this is exactly what God does. He uses chastisement. He uses suffering as a form of discipline and training. In verse 9, he draws an illustration. In fact, he will compare the discipline of earthly fathers with the discipline of God. And he's, he's arguing from what we call a lesser to a greater argument. What he says essentially is that we, if we respect our earthly fathers when they discipline us, how much more should we submit to the discipline of our heavenly father? And in verse 10, he notes a major difference between the discipline of earthly fathers and the discipline of the heavenly father. He says that the discipline of earthly fathers is short-lived, it is subjective, and therefore imperfect. So let's read the text in verse 10. For they indeed, that is earthly fathers, for a few days chasten us as seem best to them. But he that is our Lord for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. And so what is he saying? He's saying that earthly fathers, you know, when they discipline us, their discipline is short-lived. Maybe because we, we don't stay at home forever or they get tired of discipline or whatever the reason is, it's short-lived. And it says that they, they discipline us as seem best to them. They don't quite know what exactly they are to do with us. Our parents aren't all experts. They are still limited. Their discipline is limited. Sometimes they discipline too much. Uh, sometimes they don't, the discipline is too little. They discipline as it appears. It's rather subjective. It's imperfect. And the implication then is that our Lord disciplines us for the duration that is necessary and disciplines us based on wisdom. But then he comes to the third major thought about suffering here. So not only does suffering prove that we are children of God, not only is suffering to be seen as the discipline of our Father, but the third major argument is that suffering results in holiness. So unlike our fathers who discipline us as seem best, our Heavenly Father disciplines, he says, 
for our profit. And what is the profit? What does God intend to produce through our sufferings, through our discipline? He says, that we may be partakers of his holiness. That the reason that God disciplines us is because he's concerned about our eternal welfare. That the troubles and the hardships that we face in life are not to be perceived as arbitrary. They're not to be seen as we who are in this world are going through troubles and they're coming to us willy-nilly, without plan, without purpose. He says, no, they are designed by your heavenly Father and they're there to do you good. And the ultimate good that God is seeking to produce through suffering is our holiness. That we might be partakers of his holiness. You notice he doesn't even say that we may be holy because that is too vague. But rather that we may be partakers of his holiness. Meaning that we might be holy in a way that is similar or analogous to God his holiness. That we may share his holiness. Peter, in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, tells us that God has given us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So that when we were regenerated, when we became new creation, one of the things that the Spirit of God does was that He changed our natures. He gave us brand new natures. He made us different people, new creations. And part of the change the Spirit of God effected in us is a moral change. That every person, every man or woman who becomes a believer must change morally. He can never continue to live the same way in sin. There's a moral change, a spiritual change, a moral change where we hate sin and we love righteousness. We become partakers of the divine nature. We don't become gods, but we become like him. His holiness, his moral beauty also become a characteristic of our lives. But though we inherit in regeneration the nature, the holiness of God, in principle, that holiness must in fact be developed within us. And that takes the entire Christian life. We do several things if we are to grow in holiness. We mortify sin. We put sin to death. One of the ways to grow in holiness is fleeing sin. You know, the Bible never tells you to go and wrestle with sin. Never tell you to pursue it. Never tell you to be strong, to think yourself to be strong in sin. You have to run from it. Every one of us need to be, at some point in our Christian life, cowards. We run away from sin. So we seek to flee sin. We pursue the spiritual disciplines like reading the scriptures, like praying, like being with God's people. These are ways that we are trained in holiness. We pray, we read the Bible, we worship God. We examine our hearts. But one of God's main tools in moving us on to maturity, leading us on to holiness, is by corrective educational discipline. In other words, by sending trials and hardships in our lives that we might pursue holiness, that we might break off from sin, and that we might, pres- we might pursue God and seek to be like him, to resemble him. The writer goes on then, having told us that suffering results in holiness, he says, he, he comes to an honest admission. He concedes that divine discipline is painful. Now he says, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. But afterwards, he says, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are being trained by it. You notice that in scripture, you never come across anybody praying, God, I don't have enough discipline. I don't have enough troubles. I need some hardship, Lord. You know, you never see that. Because it goes against everything that we understand as human beings. We are not called upon to go and pray and ask God to send us problems. In fact, God does not need you to tell him to send you problems. He will send you problems at the right time and the right way for your good. He admits discipline is painful. But what he produces is holiness or, he says, the peaceable fruit of righteousness. 
But very briefly, we notice a third thing here. First of all, there is an encouragement to consider Christ, who is the ultimate sufferer. There is, secondly, an explanation of the function of suffering in the life of belief. And third, there is an exhortation to respond properly to suffering by running a straight path. And so in verses 12 and 13, we have the conclusion on the section here on suffering. He says, therefore, strengthen the, uh, the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. And there he, he returns to the metaphor of a race. They are running a race and their hands are drooping and their knees are knocking. This, this is a, a metaphor uh, that speaks of those who are discouraged in the Christian life, who want to give up because of hardship. They are running with drooping hands and knocking knees. And he's saying to them, you need to cast off the discouragement. You need to run this race with perseverance, with endurance, with vigor. And not only must you do so, he says to them in verse 12, but in verse 13, he says, and make straight paths for your feet, meaning run in a straight line, so that which is lame may not be dislocated, so that those within the community who are thinking of turning aside, who are suffering spiritual disability, who are spiritually dislocated and want to turn aside, that there might not be a turning away, but that there might be healing. Well, let me sum up then what we have said. The writer calls them in suffering to consider Christ the ultimate sufferer. That he calls them to know that suffering proves that they are children of God and that suffering is not punishment but divine discipline and discipline which results in our holiness. And therefore, we must pursue this path, this Christian path with vigor, running in a straight line, knowing that it will lead to healing, not only in ourselves, but in the community. I want to make a few observations from our passage. You and I must suspect suffering. This is not ground-shaking, but it needs repetition. We must suspect suffering because it is inescapable. It is an inescapable reality of life. You go into any pharmacy, you go into shopper's drug market, and you're going to find a wide variety of pain medication. You'll find pain, pain medication to deal with almost, it seems, every condition that we could possibly think of. We have pain management clinics for those who are in chronic pain. We have an array of therapists to ease our mental dis-ease or uneasiness. And all of these are beneficial you just have to think over 150 years ago when many children died between the age of 1 and 10 from smallpox. Many, many mothers died in childbirth because they lacked the basic health care. We live in a society where we're able at least to assuage our pain by a variety of means. And yet despite all of this, Despite all of the medical technology we have and the inventions around us, we need to recognize that pain is part of life and we will never be free of it while we are in this body. There are a number of reasons for this. Well, let me highlight two. First of all, we are living in a fallen world, a world that is under the curse of God, that no one can live a trouble-free life without suffering. It is indeed Job, who said, man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. You have a bonfire and you toss a log on the fire, you're going to see sparks flying up. It's natural for, for, for sparks to fly upward. It's natural for us in a fallen world, a world of sin, a world under the judgment of God, that we will endure suffering as a normal course of our existence. There's no other way. But secondly, we endure suffering even as the children of God. It is intrinsic to the Christian experience, not only to the human experience, but to the Christian experience that we suffer. It is Paul who says in Acts 14, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. We are not facing the same sufferings that these believers in the first century were facing. We're not being beaten up in public 
We're not having people taking away our property. But all of us who are Christians have suffering of some sort or the other. And our sufferings come in various guises. We suffer illnesses sent from the providence of God. We suffer broken homes and broken dreams. There are many who had wonderful ideas of where the future would be, but for some reason or the other, they have gone away, off track. Their lives have turned upside down. They're in a place today where they never intended to be 10 or 20 years before. There are those who suffer or suffered past abuse and are still suffering the effects of abuse, even though they are Christians. There are believers who suffer economic hardship, loneliness. We suffer as Christian ostracism from the world and from our families. We suffer in a world that is so hostile to God and so immoral. Whatever measurement you use, there is suffering. Maybe not that we are losing our lives, but we are paying a price to follow Jesus Christ. And you and I need to recognize that the way of the cross is a way of suffering. Jesus did say, he who will come after me must take up his cross and must follow me. And it would be disingenuous. It would be patently incorrect to tell you that to become a Christian is a bed of ease. It is the very opposite. It is through much tribulation that we will enter the kingdom of heaven. And those who follow Christ are called to come and to die. We must admit it. We must accept it. But the passage does not just tell us that which is obvious. That the life of the Christian is a life of hardship. It also provides the remedy. And what the writer does not do, I want you to note... He does not develop a theodicy. And by the language of theodicy, I'm talking about a defense of God. There have been much ink spilt, pages written, thousands of them, on the subject of evil in the world and why God allows evil. But the writer does not go into a theodicy, into a defense of God about evil. Rather, he speaks in very practical terms to those who are suffering. And he says, first of all, when you suffer, you need to recognize Jesus Christ as the ultimate sufferer. That if you are to endure in suffering, you must go back to the cross. You must realize that of all the things you suffer in this world, nothing compares to what Christ suffered for you. It is Isaiah who said he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we did not esteem him. We may think it is hard for us. And I'm not denying that your sufferings are hard. But you and I need to put our sufferings into a proper perspective. That however hard we think our lives are, do not come close in comparison to the hardship that Jesus Christ faced. He was innocent and sinless. He's God who is impassable. That is God who cannot have suffering forced upon him. And he does something that is utterly shocking. He takes on human nature. For what reason? For one reason only, to suffer and to die. He was hated by his opponents. He was ridiculed. He was persecuted. And ultimately, he was strung up on the cross, nailed to a cross. He bled there and died there for our sins. And you and I need in our trials to know that Jesus knows what it is to suffer because he has suffered even to death. I read the words of Havagal. And these words are moving. The words of Jesus as it were. I suffered much for thee. 
more than tongue can tell. Of bitterest agony to rescue thee from hell. I've borne, I've borne it all for thee. What hast thou borne for me? I've borne it, I've borne it all for thee. What hast thou borne for me? We are not telling you there that your sufferings are not real. And that they are not gut-wrenching. But what we are saying simply is that you need to know that Jesus Christ has suffered for you. Has given his life to bear your sins. And therefore you must ask him for grace to bear your trials for him. But not only must you consider that Christ has suffered for you. You must interpret scripture. And you must have a mindset that is fed and informed by the word of God. We tend to think of our suffering as God getting back at us. I'm getting what I deserve. But the writer would have us to look at our sufferings from a different light. He says you need to know that when you're suffering, you are God's children. And he's treating you with love. And that your sufferings are part of his education. There is this educative function to discipline. He's not getting back at you. He's not against you. But he's disciplining you and training you for righteousness. He's putting you through the grinder. He's crushing you that perfume may come. He's working his way in your life that you might be like him. His intentions are not to destroy you but to make you better. And the only way God makes us better is by pressuring us. You see, the same hand that pressures us is the same hand that supports us. In our midst of our troubles, we must not then be resentful or angry against God. But we must submit ourselves to his discipline and know that he says, My grace is sufficient and my strength is made perfect in weakness. We must humble ourselves under the almighty hand of God and be patient and look to him by faith that he will deliver us. I don't know if you were here today and you're unsaved. And maybe your life has gone off the rails. Maybe as you look at yourself, you are suffering and you're in much pain. I want to direct you to Jesus who says, Come to me, all of you who are labored and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I want you to take all of your burdens and bundle them up and bring them to Jesus and be clear in your heart and say, Lord, this is who I am and this is where I am. Help me. Because if you come to him in desperation, he will hear you, he will deliver you, he will save you. Bring all of your troubles to him. He understands them all. He cares. And if you are a saint, you are a child of God, God is not against you. God is working for your good. And he will use this present suffering that you now face to make you better, more holy, more like him. Let me conclude by saying, you need to know that suffering is a means and not the end. Your sufferings are not the end. They're only God's means. And one day they will end. I'm struck, you know, by what Matthew says. In Matthew chapter 8, Matthew's telling us about how Jesus is casting out demons out of people and healing the sick. And Matthew makes an editorial comment that is frankly ingenious. He says that Jesus' healing of the sick is fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. He himself took our infirmities, and bore our sicknesses. That's what Isaiah says in chapter 53, verse 4. He took up our infirmities. He carried our diseases, our sicknesses. Now, when you read that passage in Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 4, the sicknesses which Christ carry, the diseases which he carry, refer to our sins. That when Christ went to the cross... He paid for our sins. But Matthew elaborates, he says, that when Jesus Christ went to the cross and carried our sicknesses and our diseases, he did not only pay for our spiritual healing, he paid for our physical healing. That's why Christ went around healing the sick. And you need to know that the sufferings you have 
are only for the present. On the cross, Christ has prayed, uh, has paid for your complete healing, spiritual and physical. And that on the day of Christ, when he returns, you'll be free from all pain, from all diseases, from all disorders, from all loss, from all grief. In that final chapter of Revelation, John says, I saw in the midst of the city a stream flowing, and on its banks were the tree of life. The tree of life produced 12 crops, one per month. And he says that the leaves are for the healing of the nation. Your troubles are temporary. Christ has gone to the cross. He has paid for you to be delivered from sin and from pain of all sorts. And when you see him and when he comes, you will know a life and an existence free from sorrow, free from trouble, free from pain. May the Lord help you in your time of hardship to consider Christ, to know you are God's beloved and that God is working as your Father in your suffering for your good. May, you, may he cause you to love him and to wait upon him for Jesus' sake. Amen. Lord, we thank you that you are concerned about our lives. You understand where we are. You understand all our circumstances. We pray that you would humble us, that we may come and cast all our burdens upon you because you care. We pray that in our troubles you may remind us of your fatherly love. And we ask, O oh God, that you would use our present trials in our circumstances to make us godly people and holy people. We think of the psalmist David who said, when I was afflicted, or before I was afflicted, I went astray. But now I keep your word. We know that you use affliction and trials to turn us away from evil, to turn us to yourself. And so we pray, Lord, help us not to chafe. Help us not to be resentful but help us to surrender ourselves to you. We ask, O oh God, make us more like Jesus Christ. So comfort your people and bless them, we pray. And for those who suffer as unbelievers, we pray that they might find in Jesus Christ the true comfort and satisfaction of their hearts. We ask all of this for Christ's sake. Amen.